One, happy daylight saving time. Everybody need another cup of coffee, kind of a little pick-me-up? To all those watching online, welcome. Sorry you couldn't make it today. We understand you're still in your jammies, uh, probably still at home. Some of you just <laughs> probably turned on and realized you lost an hour somewhere along the way. And anyway, we're so glad you're here. Pray God has blessed you through the worship already. Uh, we're going to open God's Word together. And I'm going to have the scripture passages on the, the, the PowerPoint simply because I'm going through a lot of different ones. Uh, last week, um, and really over the last two months, I've been preaching on the idea of sacrificial giving, sacrificial living. The fact that <clears throat> everything we do is a response to what God has done for us, right? So we're not, we're not generating things on our own. What we're doing is we're responding to the love and grace and the sacrifice that God has given in our lives in order to live like he's called us to live. We, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The idea being that God has given us the greatest gift, his son, he's indescribable, and that everything we do is a response to that gift that he's already given us. Listen, I keep coming back to that because... If we, don't, if we don't hold on to that and we start to try and do things, like even, even living sacrificially, even giving stuff away, even, even trying to plan for the future, invest in kids' lives or uh, young adults' lives or whatever the case may be, we will at some point run out of our natural rope, so to speak. We'll give, and some people can give a little more than others, but at some point we're all going to come to an end. But if we are tapped into the, the sacrificial love of God, there is no end to what we can do if we'll stay in tune with him. Over the last week, I, I started talking about our future. How do we pour into the future and to lives ahead? Now, I'm, I'm getting a little older. As I said last week, if... You know, it was a football game. I'd be going around holding up four fingers like it's the fourth quarter of my ministry here at Fullness, which is great. I, I, I think the game is won or lost in the fourth quarter. Uh, but I want to press on to the end of the game and do all that God has called me to be. So I, in my mind right now, a lot of what I'm doing is um, I, I don't want to coast into the end of the game. I want to play hard to the last whistle blows. And part of what I want to do is pour into the lives of those who are coming up behind me. I want to pour into not just my children's lives, but to those I consider my children in many aspects, the, the young adults of this church and those that are coming along uh, in leadership. I really want to see this church move from where it is now to the next generation. I don't want it to end with me. I don't want it to end with the kind of the generation who started this church. I want it to, to be a gener multi-generational church that, that casts forward into the future. Now, some of you are here today, and you're in your 20s and your 30s, and you're saying, oh, this is great. They're going to pour into me. Well, part of the message I want to give to you today is no matter where you are, no matter what age you are, to cast yourself in a future. Not just yourself, but to say, okay, who can I pour into? Okay, if I'm 25, well, there are teenagers I could help. If I'm a teenager, there's children I could help. You understand? We, we all should, as I said last week, we should have a, a Paul, somebody who mentors us, 
We should have a Barnabas, someone who is on the same level as we are that can encourage us. And we should all have a Timothy, somebody we're pouring into for, um, for the future. In review, I told you the story of King Hezekiah who did a ton of good things in the Old Testament. What, what, outside of Solomon, after Solomon, he's the most written about king uh, in, in Chronicles and Kings and even in the book of Isaiah. He did a ton of good things. But at some point he gets sick and he's going to die. Isaiah tells him he's going to die. The prophet Isaiah tells him he's going to die. Hezekiah calls out to the Lord. He's miraculously healed. Isaiah comes back to him and tells him he's going to be healed. And he gets 15 more years of life. And during these 15 years, he does makes a couple of really, really bad decisions. Some things that happened um, that really colored what he had done before, so to speak. He, he did not end well. And so Isaiah comes back to him and says to him, Hey, the mistakes you've made in these last years, they're going to cost the nation their place. Uh, the Babylonians that you showed all the treasures to that you shouldn't have, they're going to carry it all away. It's going, to be, it's going to be bad in the days ahead. To which Hezekiah basically responds, well, is it going to happen while I'm alive? And uh, Isaiah says, no, it's going to happen afterwards. And Hezekiah basically says, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Uh, to me, this is the the epitome of losing what your role as king is supposed to be about. It is not just about creating peace and prosperity in your lifetime, but in pouring into the generations that are to come. To say, look, the economy is going to be good. We're going to be healthy as long as I'm alive. Now, after I'm dead, 100 years from now, um, they're, they're, everything's going to fall apart. But that's okay. I won't be here to really worry about it. That's a loss of vision. That's a loss of our, our goal to be multi-generation and pour into the future. And so last week, I talked about these truths about pouring into the next generation. That in order to do that, you have to know God personally. You can't, you can't take people where you're not. If you want to help people get envisioned for the future. You need to know God personally. You need to demonstrate authentic relationship. You've you got to have a relationship with someone. Again, loving God, loving people. The, the vertical and the horizontal aspect, the relational aspect of Christianity. Share your story. Share how, what God has done in your life. Share the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the miraculous, because that will help people. It'll help younger generations. If all they think is you're perfect and that you've done no wrong, then you're unrelatable. And so sharing where you messed up is, can be very helpful. Listen to their dreams. Uh, they have dreams and visions. Help them to, to see their dreams come true. Listen to them. Know what their dreams are about. And encourage them to achieve their destiny. Everyone, I believe, has a destiny in the Lord. You were, you were born for such a time as this. You were born for a reason. God has you perfectly timed out. You're here for something. Find out and walk in that destiny. Encourage people 
that are younger and for the future to achieve their destiny. And it says in Thessalonians, therefore, this is to all of us, we should encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Let us be a congregation that builds one another up. So today, let's look at five more of these. Five from last week, five from, aren't you glad I didn't do 10 last week? <clears throat> We'd still, yeah, I know. You don't even remember what I did last week. That's what I want to remind you. Here's number six, really. Number one in your bulletin today says this, accept their uniqueness. Accept their uniqueness. You know, everybody's different. And because we're different, it's a good thing, right? Hello? Because we're different, it's a good thing. Accept people's uniqueness. It says in Corinthians that God works through different men in different ways, but it is the same God who achieves his purposes through them all. God works in different ways through different people. Why? Because we're different. Every one of us. If we're all alike, which one of us are they going to all be alike about? Now, you might say, well, obviously, if you're, everybody were more like me, then this world would be a better place. And I would probably say, no, if it was more like me, it'd be, it'd be pretty perfect. But that's not the case. We need the variety and the uniqueness that we all bring to a situation. It has to do with the body of Christ and the different body parts. And it's not just that. It's not just your spiritual gifting. It's your, it's your history, how you got here. It's your emotional makeup. It's your, it's your talents and your abilities that make you, make you unique. I'm just going to throw this in as a side point, but I think this is true, especially if you're here in your 20s, teenager 20s. One of the things that will rob you of all joy in your life, you could write this down. This is one of those things I think is so good, you should write down. <laughs> one of the, and it's so simple. All, one of the things that will rob you of all joy, and I mean all joy in your life, is comparison. If you start to compare yourself with another person, and say, I'm not, I just, I'm not like them. And you see the fact you're not like them is something less than them. You will be robbed of all joy. I mean, I, the older I get, the more I see it. And you can just take it to the bank. I, I see it. Ladies, I, I, I hate to be, I'm not picking on gender. I know it's National Women's Day or weekend or whatever going on sometime around now. Um, <clears throat> but especially college-age girls... If they, there seems to be a, a, um, a plague of comparison. And let me just say this too. I know I'm talking old man junk here. But social media ain't helping you out a bit. Not one bit. Uh, it's just causing that, that curse of comparison to make you more depressed and to bring you down. Uh, relish in your unique, uniqueness. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are beautiful women of God. And I want to encourage you to stand for that. And we as a church, we as people, we need to accept the uniqueness of individuals. I've told this story several times, but it's such a great story. And if you're here last week, you remember I said I repeat stories all the time. Uh, so <clears throat> happens as I get older. So if you've heard it, great. Just pretend you haven't. If you've never heard it, this will be great. You'll love it. 
<laughs> and like five years ago now, uh, I was doing uh, training f to do an Ironman, and uh, it's, it's ridiculous the amount of work you have to put in and the hours, and I couldn't keep weight on. I mean, I was dropping pounds like crazy. I was eating like crazy. I know, I know some of you are like, I, I don't even know why he's telling me this. But I, I, I really, I could not keep eat enough calories to um, keep weight on. And some where, um, it was one of those days where all my family was in the house, which is unusual even back then and even now. As a matter of fact, it was like the second or third time Sarah, who became our daughter-in-law, she and my son were dating at the time. She became my daughter-in-law. She was in the house, and we were having dinner together. And um, one of my sons said something like he had put on some weight. One of my sons had put on some weight. And the other boys were making fun of him. And that's what happens in the Brookings house. We don't necessarily accept uniqueness really well, but they're making fun of him, and he said something like, yeah, but at least I don't weigh as much as dad. Now, I don't know when I became the poster boy for overweight, <laughs> but for, in their mind, it was like, at least I don't weigh as much as dad. So I kind of threw out there, hey, how much do you think you weigh? And he gave me a pound thing, and I knew I was way under it because I couldn't keep weight on. I knew I was, like, below. And I said, all right, I'm calling a family weigh-in. <laughs> so one of the boys said, yes, family weigh-in, and they ran to the back and got the scales and brought them into the living room. Now, I saw my future daughter-in-law's eyes just go, like, the horror that was on her like, what is wrong with this family? Like, I am not getting on that scale. There is no way. And sure enough, all the boys and my girls um, got on the scale to see how much everybody weighed. Kathy did not, and neither did Sarah. We released them from that, that burden. I, I would like to say I was not close to being the heaviest one in our family on that day. But here's the idea. We make these comparisons like, oh, dad, he's the fat one in our family. If I'm under him, then I'm good. Well, I mean, it, it, it just, we rob each other of the joy and uniqueness that God has made for us when we compare personalities, when we compare looks, compare resources, compare the car we drive or the house. And we live in an age that is, is, is telling us this is the only path, and this is what you have to drive. This is where you have to live. This is what you have to save. And it robs us of the joy of being different. A couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg was speaking at Harvard, and you may know the story. Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook when he was at Harvard, then made so much money he dropped out. Now they had him come back to give a graduation speech uh, at Harvard. And he said something like this at the end of the, in the, in the sermon. He said, sermon, the speech. Um, in the speech that he gave, he said, by the end of the day, you will have done something I never have done. You will have completed something at Harvard. You get it? He never graduated. So them graduating, he's saying, I never finished anything I ever started here at Harvard. I went here two years 
started Facebook and dropped out. Now, most people would say, oh, poor college dropout. Got into Harvard, but then he, had, you know, he dropped out. He's such a loser because he didn't finish college. I mean, he's one of the richest men in the world at this point. We think there is one path to success. And I, I want to say there is one way and only one way to success, but it is through Jesus Christ and the multiplicity of ways that he has made us unique. He still shines his light through us for the glory of the Lord. When John F. Kennedy one time was, um, um, he was in Houston uh, trying to help things get ready for the moon, uh, all the space stuff going on, and he walked around a corner and there was a janitor who was sweeping, and uh, President Kennedy said to him, what are you doing? And the janitor said, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. You know, we all contribute together. For the purpose. It doesn't, we may not be the rocket scientists, but everything we're doing is for the glory of God. And we need to accept the unique and wonderful way that we are made. Each person should judge his own actions and not compare himself to others. Then he can be proud for what he himself has done. It says in the Proverbs, and since we have baby dedication today, I thought I'd throw this in. Train up a child on the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let me say what this is not, and then let me say what I think it is. This is, not, this is not a guarantee parenting statement. This is not the, the one that we've leaned in for so long that says, I guarantee you, if you take your child to church and you teach them the Bible, then they'll come to know Jesus and they'll never stray from the path. God doesn't make that promise for you, I'm sorry. I don't, that would, that would be going against any manner of free will that we see in people's lives. Now, I, by the way, I'm all for taking your children to church, presenting the word of the Lord to them, uh, teaching them who Jesus is. More, this is, this is talking about the bent and the way a child is made. In, in some translations, it talks about train up a child according to their bent about according to the way God has made them. And then when they're older, won't. In other words, trying to find out what your chi- how your child is unique is very, can be very special. We've spent a lifetime trying to find out the uniqueness of our children, the way they're made, what makes them special, and point them in that way. And even now, I get accused of having fallen short by my children of what they're unique. You know, I've got a son who uh, is snowboards in Wyoming right now. That's, that's, he's working and has a job, but that's just to support his habit of uh, being on the mountain. And, and so I, last summer I was talking to him, and he was saying, you know, if you had raised me in Colorado, I would be in the Olympics by now. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, son. I, I, that just wasn't, in the, that wasn't the way... It wasn't the way things worked out uh, for us. (laughs) Sometimes you do it as best you can, right? (laughs) To help find their uniqueness. But again, there's no guarantees. No guarantees. Second, trust them with responsibility. Trust those that are underneath you. This is good for trainers, I mean managers, Every one of these points, by the way, could be applied to parenting, too. So if, you wanna, if you're a parent here today and you want to take some of these uh, home as a parent, that's great. But I'm really talking about pouring into the next generation. 
In Luke 10, it says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, you may read this and say, you know, I don't want to trust my child or this person because I don't see them as trustworthy. Listen, the only way you can find out if someone is trustworthy is trust them with something. Is to trust them with something. Trust them to do something. Here's a statement. You, I'm going to give you a lot of write-down statements. These are so good. Um, overprotection is a form of rejection. You can write that down. I know that's harsh, but you can write it. Overprotection is a form of rejection. You think you're protecting this person. And I'm not saying God has not called you as a parent or a leader to protect the person, but overprotection, where you don't trust them with anything, is actually saying to them, I don't trust you to be able to do this. You're rejecting and won't ever see the possibilities that God has for that person or that child. Um, I, I've been amazed at times. I, I've, I've tried to, I wish I could parent again. Don't we all at times wish we had another shot? Now, I, I think my kids have turned out okay. Um, okay, I'm just kidding. But my kids have turned out great. I love my children, but I would have given them more to do. I would have trusted them with even more than I trusted them with. Uh, there are certain families in our church over the years who I, I'm amazed at what they've trusted their kids to do. You know, uh, Greg and Pam Rogers are a great example. I don't know if any of the Rogers are here this morning, but they're a great example. Greg would like, he would give to his boys, he'd say, hey, go paint the living room. You know what I mean? I mean, like, I, the kid's seven years old. Go paint the living room. I'd want to teach them how to paint, show them how to paint, how to cut in, how to do this. They'd probably just sit there and watch me paint the whole thing, which my kids wouldn't have minded so much. But Greg would just give his kids a brush and a hammer and say, go fix the, go do this. And You know, sometimes we need to think and to say, God has a purpose and a plan for this life. And if I, if I can lift the overprotection mindset that's in our generation right now, and not reject, and to let people go. I, I heard John Maxwell say one time about leader. He said, if you find somebody who can do your job 75 to 80% as well as you, let them have it. It's kind of eye-opening to me. Because I'm looking for somebody who can do my job like 95 to 99% as well as I can. Before I really let them go loose. I mean, if I had to do parenting over again, I would release my children to do more. If I started our church again, I would release some of our early leaders to do more, not less. Just to let them run, just a little, little more. I'm trying with the staff we have now. I'm trying with leaders that I'm raising up to say, hey, just go for it. Don't ask me so much if this is the right move. I, I, we were joking at staff meeting one day. I think it was Gabriel was saying to me, hey, do you want me to do it like this, or you want me to do it like this, or you want me to do it like this? I said, look, I, I really would rather you just do it, and then I'll criticize you later. <laughs> yeah, you just go, I, I, you do it, and then I, I'd rather just give you, you know, just correct you later. We were joking. Uh, but some way, figuring things out on your own is a good way to, to figure out 
responsibility and uniqueness. I mean, think about it. Jesus was barely with his disciples a couple of years, and he, he said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Oh, man. I mean, he unleashed these guys on the world. And we're afraid to let someone do little stuff. Listen, we really want to raise up a future generation, leaders that are to come, trust them with responsibility. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't expect the best. You know, expect the best. And I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just saying, at some point, we do expect people to do the best they can with the time and the resources and the talents they have. I, I, I don't think there's anything biblical with slouching without just sliding by. I think that God, over and over again, he gave his best, right? He calls us to do our best, and our best is never going to be perfect, but just to give the best that we have. And honestly, if you expect the best of people, they'll actually do better. There's a study by a, a Harvard psychologist named Robert Rosenthal, and it's called the Pygmalion Effect among uh, elementary schoolers and preschoolers. And this study happened starting in the 60s. Rosenthal's first experiment was this. He took some mice and he divided them up and he gave them to his uh, grad students. And to one group of grad students, he said, uh, These, the mice I'm giving you are especially gifted at running a maze. A maze, you know, a, a maze. Are you with me? Shake your head so we know maze running. And... <laughs> The, uh, this, this other group of mice, they're idiots at maze running. So you're going to have to work harder with them. They're not very good. And actually, the mice that he gave both groups were identical. He was really testing his students, not the mice. So you got your gifted, not gifted maze runners. What happened is, in actuality, the ones that were called gifted ended up performing substantially better than the ones that were called not gifted. And so he backed off and said, how can that be? They're the same mice. Well, he found out that the, the ones that were speaking to the mice and uh, uh, designing the experiments and doing everything was actually leaning toward expecting the best of these idiot mice, and they actually performed. Now, Rosenthal, being a typical scientist said, hey, let's take this to humans and see what happens. So he took the experiment to kindergarten through fifth graders. And in the spring before the next year, he tested a large sampling of kids, did an IQ test on them. Unbeknownst to the teachers, what he did was he came to the teachers right before the school started the next year and said, hey, these five children in your class tested especially gifted, higher IQ. Now, actually, they didn't. They were exactly the same as everybody else. And he, across the board, from kindergarten to fifth grade, at the end of the year, they retested the children, and those that were labeled gifted, their IQs rose between 15 and 27 points. Why? Because the teachers expected more of them. They poured more into them. They talked more to them. Listen, if you're a parent here today, let me encourage you 
to speak life into your children. Speak life into them. Expect the best from them. And you'll be amazed at what happens. If you're a leader at any level, rather than um, just uh, bad-mouthing the people under you, expect the best from them, speak life into them, and you'll receive, you'll receive more. There's this comic strip of these two girls um, yelling at Charlie Brown what an idiot it is and how, how much you should just get away from them and how terrible. I don't even know why you'd write a strip like this. It's just, I mean, the words they're saying to him are just horrible. And he, they say, go on home. We don't want you around here. Who asked you to come by in the first place? Nobody. Go on home. So he kind of dejectedly goes away. And look at their line at the end. They say, you know, it's a strange thing about Charlie Brown. You almost never see him laugh. We're like that. We, 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 rather than expecting the best, we expect the worst out of people. When we get the worst, then we're like, why can't we get better? Expect the best out of those you're leading. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Love, trust God always, always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. It does lead me to the next point, though. We're all going to make mistakes, right? Where everyone's going to mess up. And we can correct without condemning. Correct without condemning. Now, some people would say, okay, well, I don't ever need to bring correction. And I would say this is unbiblical <laughs> to, to, to say I don't need to bring ever bring correction. Just tell everybody they're a perfect whatever they are. Let them uh, just go about life and do what they, they want. But the Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines us. He loves. That's, that's us. He disciplines us. Why? Because we mess up and he wants us to become more. He disciplines us. Look, again, this is not a parenting seminar, but parents, let me just give you, um, I, I know within our society there is a, there is a move to say uh, children don't need to be disciplined. Don't discipline children. Just let them become whatever they are. Just give them free reign. Don't ever worry about disciplining them. Listen, I, 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 I preach... I, I try to preach the Word of God. I try to stay close to biblical mandate. And the Bible says that if you don't discipline your children, it actually proves that you don't really love them. You might say, oh, that's so harsh. But Proverbs 12 says a refusal to correct is a refusal to love. Love your children. How? By disciplining them. I'm not talking about child abuse. I'm not talking about, um, you know, uh, uncalled for beatings. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about establishing some method of discipline that will help your child uh, be corrected. You know, as I said before, Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher of uh, the, uh, several hundred years ago, who is so so well known, he, he, he had like seven or eight children, and he had a bunch and uh, someone talked about how children were angels, and he said, children are not angels. Children are little vipers. He's, he believed in the total depravity of man, including within our children. And disciplining them, he felt like, was very important. Also, if you don't discipline, you never correct your children, you set them up for failure. Set them up for failure. Discipline your children while you still have the chance. Indulging them does what? It destroys them. And we live in a massively indulgent society where we indulge our children. We want to give them everything they ever wanted. 
poor little things. You know, we want to give them because they, you know, if they don't have everything, if they don't go to every gymnastic event, if they don't go to every soccer event, if they don't go to, to every uh, special um, recital, if they don't take ballet and taekwondo and everything, then, and if they don't have everything in their room, they're not going to be, they're, they're going to be robbed and they're not going to be blessed and you're not going to be, no, they're just going to be indulged and ultimately destroyed. Disciplining, what I'm trying, and listen, I've made my share of mistakes. I'm not trying to stand up and say I haven't screwed up. And this is, doesn't have to do just with parenting. This has to do with every leadership principle that if you want to help people become what they are uniquely made to be and to become, then help them, discipline them. Now, never, never correct in anger. Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive me. For the times I've been really mad about something with my children. And I, I, I determined when I was angry at them because they acted like idiots that, or just hurt one another, that I would never correct in anger. And so there have been lots of times. You know, when I would send my kid, the kid to the room, the child to their room, it wasn't because I wanted them to think about things. It would be so that I wouldn't go in there and kill them. I needed a breath. I needed to reorient. I needed to hear from the Lord about how to... My, now, my children would thought, oh, they're just punishing me by making sin in the room. No, I'm, I'm trying to save your dadgum life right now <laughs> by staying away from you and, give, and having a moment to never correct in anger. And watch your words. I, I think words are... Whew, I think a child will recover much more quickly from other forms of discipline than words out of control. Things like you're an idiot, you're never going to amount to anything, you're just like this or that. or Those kind of words, they are lifelong anchors for children. Listen, some of you are in your 50s, 60s, 70s, you still remember words from teachers, from people over you, your parents that are, I mean, they still rip at your heart. They still affect and color how you view yourself. We as parents, we as leaders, we need to guard our words with each other. We need to bless and curse not. Now, we can correct, correct without condemning. Correct without condemning. Finally is this, never give up on them. Never give up on them. Keep Pressing forward. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. Hang in there. Don't give up. Love doesn't fail. As a father, has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who reverence him. A number of years ago, a couple of years ago, one of my sons gave his testimony in church, and if you, before many of you were here, and talked about a, a major failing in his life uh, that had occurred, and the consequences of it, and what had happened, and I look back at that day when I, I, I measure much of life 
before and after the day he got arrested. You know, you're sitting at home and you're like, everything's going great, everything's fine. And then you get a call from a police officer on the other end of the phone that says, Mr. Brookins, uh, I have your son. And it's like your, your whole, the whole thing explodes in your head. You know what I mean? The whole thing just kind of goes nuts. And I fortunately had about 12 hours from that phone call to when I saw him to try and figure out what, what I was going to do, how I was going to respond. I went through a range of emotions about from, I, I mean, honestly, I thought about, uh, okay, I'm removing him from our home. Um, I'm going to take everything he has away from him. I'm going to do this. I mean, I went through a range of things. What is the proper response here? And I am so grateful that I had those hours before I saw him again. And when I saw him, I just went on the back deck with him. We just went out on the back deck and sat down. And I just didn't say a thing for a minute. And he said to me, Dad, I am, I am so sorry for what I've done and the shame I brought on you and our family by this stupid decision. I am so sorry. And I started crying, and I'm not much of a crier, and this particular son is not a crier at all, and he started crying. And I said to him, son, I, I want you to know this. I'll never give up on you. I'll never give up on you. I, it may take time. And I said, not only that, but I want you to know right now you need me more than you've ever needed me in your entire life. And mom and I are going to be here to help you work through it. I don't want you to think that I'm not disappointed. I'm hurt. I'm disappointed. I do expect the best from you. But we're going to make it. We're going to make it through this. Somehow we're going to overcome. I, you know, honestly, I, if God had, hadn't intervened in his life, and had a police officer show up, I don't have any idea where that child would be today. You know, my prayer for my children has always been, God, I know my kids are going to screw up, but I'm asking you, Lord, keep them on a short leash. When they do screw up, may they not go too far out. Yank them by the neck back. I know there's things I don't know that are going on in their lives, but keep them on a short leash so that they don't get so far out that they won't be destroyed. Listen, as leaders, we and parents, and you're all in different places here, and I, I pray that for you today, you will begin to, to look at the multitude of opportunities that are around you to raise up the next generation. And whatever generation you're in, there's always going to be a next one. To raise up the next generation, the future leaders your children, our children, our youth, our young adults, those in their 20s, 30s, 40s, so that we can pass on the goodness of the Lord to those around us. Lord, I thank you this morning for your incredible goodness in our lives. I thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven me, that I stand before 
you as a picture of the grace of God. I, I am in no way complete, and yet, Lord, for all the multitude of times I've messed up, you've never given up on me. You've kept pouring your love and grace and mercy into my life, and Lord, I thank you. I thank you for that, and I pray, God, that eyes would be opened in this place. I pray that every single person here would see that not only are they a picture of grace, but they have the opportunity to pour grace into the next generation by disciple-making and speaking life and mentoring and just bringing people alongside and, and to, to, to help release others in responsibility. God, I pray that you would show us in the days to come, how we can be kingdom builders by building your kingdom into others. Lord, I thank you. I bless you. I love you. Spirit of God, speak to us this morning.